Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and the 97.5 HD2 Network, a part of Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Jeff, I normally would ask you about Thursday Night Football, but I'm not even going to go there. Oh, thank you very much. Because after the amount of time that you and I spent a few weeks ago watching the release of the four-part ESPN 30 for 30 Once Upon a Time in Queens. I've watched it twice. I know you have. I know. And that's only because you haven't had more free time. You would have watched it more if you had a little more time on your hands. Mm -hmm. Who better to have on come and talk about it with us? Producer, director, Nick Davis joins us to talk about it all. Nick, thanks so much for giving us a few minutes today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Nick, I got to thank you. Uh, as somebody who was, I was in college, I was a freshman in college, the 1986 year, and that documentary brings back so many memories of, of that time. And I know you're a Mets fan. What was it like for you to do that? And, and to go through that and live that with the actual players? Uh, it was a dream. <laughs> I mean, I can't... Uh, I, I was just actually uh, thinking, and we, we didn't have time for it in the film, but I went down to Philadelphia. I'm a huge Mets fan, and I was, I guess, a junior in college. And I went down to Philadelphia to see the Mets clinch uh, on, uh, in, in September, and they did. They, they got swept by the Phillies. Um, and I, I, you know, it was just such an incredible time to be a fan of a team that had been so bad for so long and then came together, uh, you know, piece by piece in the early 80s until by 86, they were this juggernaut. And it was such a thrill for me then. And and so to be, I, I, I just can't put into words what it's like to then, you know, 35 years later to be able to tell their story. It was um it was a dream. So it's one thing to be a fan and, and get to watch it. It's another thing to get to tell the story. But not only did you tell the story, you got the league's blessing. And that, that translated into sort of the most comprehensive collection of video footage and, and archival material that we've seen about the team. Can you talk about that process and how that added to what you were able to do in telling this story? Well, the, the league, luckily enough, if, we, if this had been about the 85 Mets, if the 85 Mets had broken through and won a World Series, it, we wouldn't have had nearly the archive that we got for 86. For some reason, um, the Mets had a documentary film crew that intermittently followed the team that year. It wasn't major. It wasn't every day, but it was enough to give us some behind-the-scenes footage that most people had never seen before. And in particular, when you get to the playoffs and World Series, it, it gave us some shots that were just, you know, magical. I, I think, you know, what's great about Major League Baseball at this point with this kind of film is they exercise no editorial control. They were like, look, we trust that you're not out to get us. You're not out to get these guys. These guys obviously had a lot of personal problems that they are you know, willing to discuss and, and display, but you're going to tell the whole complete story and from start to finish. And, and, and so it was just fantastic to have them as a partner because in addition to also just being able to get every Met game that was recorded and all the radio broadcasts from that year, uh, they just had a tremendous archive. And for, for some reason, there was a major jump up in 86 in all of their 
archives. Well, is that because they were also great recording artists in 86? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, rap stars, you know, you haven't heard songs like we, that. Since, we, talked uh, with, you know. we talked with Ed Hearn last week about his starring role in that 1986 Mets video. So we made that sure to get good. that story. The, the, you mentioned something, though, about the players being willing to talk. They, they didn't seem reluctant when participating at all. Were you surprised how open some of these players with you were with you? And can you talk about what the interview process was like? Yeah, I think some of them were a little reluctant initially because, you know, look, this is a story that's been told in bits and pieces in other documentaries and certainly in, in books and articles. But no one had ever approached it from, you know, the era of the long form documentary where we had four hours to tell the whole story. And I think some of them thought, oh, you're just out to get us again. And as soon as we sat down and started talking to them. Um, I think they realized, oh, wait a minute, we're, you know, this guy's actually asking us, you know, about our whole lives, not just zeroing in on, you know, so what was it like doing cocaine in New York, you know, or, or any of the sort of gotcha kind of things. Um, so I think they, they all felt like, all right, they're, they're going to do this right. And um, I was surprised at how open they all were. I think those who, you know, maybe haven't had the best lives wanted to tell their stories in kind of a cautionary tale kind of way like don't do what i did you know certainly uh doc gooden and, and daryl strawberry i think want to get their stories out there and feel like people can learn from from some of their mistakes and i think to some extent the, the same is true of, of of lenny dykstra who has not had the easiest time um but then like keith hernandez i was completely surprised that he went so deep into his very complicated relationship with his father and he he could have painted it in much you know broader strokes and he could have also just said i'm not gonna even try and explain how complicated it was with my dad who i loved but had this complicated relationship with so yeah it was it was wonderful to to talk to them all and and be the sort of recipient of so much openness you know we've we've talked to athletes in the past about we even talked to like people like Tim Tebow, about the parent-child relationship growing up in sports. And then you have this story, which I really wasn't expecting, was this story about Keith Hernandez and his father and, and the way that his father was calling him every like after every at-bat and that apparently Keith Hernandez's biggest regret was that he got his dad a dish. Um, was that something yeah. that you <laughs> knew going into it, or was that something that because he starts to feel comfortable, he starts to divulge this information and just share well, a little of both. I mean, it, it, Keith wrote a really good um, autobiography or a portion of an autobiography, mostly just about his early struggles up until his years with the Cardinals a couple of years ago. And, and a lot of his relationship with his father is in there. But there's something about it in print that's just different from actually having him talk to you or talk to an audience because you just you feel it on an emotional level in a different way. And... Um, and he did, I think, go into into greater detail than in, with us than he did in his own book. Um, yeah, I mean, he it was it was mutual. I mean, Keith is going back to Davy Johnson's office and calling his dad. Um, the problem is that his dad was was sometimes saying, you know, I told you before, you, you close your stance, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and and they really got into it so much so that they had a huge fight in the summer of '86 and didn't talk all summer. And that was actually from a Sports Illustrated article I read the summer of 86, late that summer, 
uh, a great, great piece by, I think, William Hawk is the sports writer's name. And it was in that piece that he said that he hadn't been talking to his dad all summer. That wasn't in the, in the book. But I asked him about it because of that article. All right. Well, I do have to ask one more question about Keith Hernandez. What was up with the cat? <laughs> this cat's great. I mean, the cat is, <laughs> I guess, you know, people knew that he had this cat. And so we started the interview in, uh, in his condo in Florida outside uh, on a little, you know, patio or whatever. And, uh, and the boats in the harbor behind him and then actually a lawnmower was just too loud. So we went inside and that's where the cat had been. Um, and the cat just immediately jumped up and was on his lap. And, and you know, a few of the people on set were like, well, what, what can we do with the cat? And it was clear, like, Keith was comfortable with the cat there. So we just said, well, let's just roll and we'll see what happens. And uh, it couldn't have gone better. Uh, I was very, very happy with Haji's participation. So unlike you and Jeff, I, I wasn't the Mets fan growing up. But the 86 World Series is sort of my first real memory of baseball playoffs and that intensity of watching the game with my dad how was it for you to capture the way that game six went in in that series and to relive it with the players what was that like uh what was most fun if i don't know if fun is the right word but, but was to play for mookie wilson the audio and i we just listened uh, in the interview room, um, as as we li- we listened to the entire at bat with Mookie Wilson listening to the um, to the radio call from Bob Murphy, and that to me was just a very very special moment. And only a couple of seconds made it into the film, but it was it was really you you do you felt like wow it it, it did change all their lives. Like Bobby Ojeda says, like it was just a moment, but it changed all their lives, and they all remember it so vividly and so well and you know so happily um and it's it's great to have those moments that i mean obviously red sox fans and and people who were not rooting for the mets remember it negatively but even they (laughs) it's not it's not a serious negativity it's not you know a, a national tragedy but but to have a moment where we can all remember where we were uh and it and it it's so you know emblazoned in our memories it's just really fun um, and it was great to, to hear it from all those guys. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, that at bat and the way that you cover that game from beginning to end, it's edge of your seat to the point, I'm always amazed that people who are good at documentaries can take something that we all already know the facts. It's not like a fiction movie where you don't know the ending. We know what the ending is, and as you're watching it, you almost forget and, and don't want to know the ending as you're watching it. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you to, you know what the ending is, but to cover it that way and cover every pitch and what everybody was thinking and even the the players leading up to that and all the chaos that was going on, what was it like to, to go through? We all lived that moment. You're now sitting <laughs> yeah. there with them going through their recollections of every second of that. Kevin Mitchell coming up was the thing that stunned me. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, first of all. And I have to give a shout out to the editor of that episode, Josh Freed, who did a fantastic job of of weaving all those stories together. You know, it, it was so fun. I mean, it was and, and it was so great that we got to hear from all of them and, and, and they all remembered it so specifically. You know, a lot of 
athletes' memories are are faulty, you know. But in that inning, they all remembered it perfectly. They they just nailed it exactly down to the well. Then I fouled it off, and then I knew he was going to throw me the slider, and I was waiting for the slider, and you know, all that stuff was just so fun and 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 terrific. So towards the end of episode four, you have Doc Gooden talking about watching the parade from a drug house, mm-hmm. which you know that I wasn't as familiar with that story and, and it's compelling to watch and, and hear him recount it. One, what was that like for you? And, and then two, were there other stories that you came across that you found particularly compelling throughout this? Yeah, I, I that was uh, heartbreaking. And I, you know, as a Met fan, I remember that he missed the parade and that the New York times reported the next day that he'd missed it because he had the sniffles and we all well he did do. apparently I, exactly and, and yeah, nowadays that would be that would be an excuse now <laughs> <laughs> right exactly no i mean it was it was it was I, I went into the interview knowing okay this will be a moment we have to get to what i didn't know we were going to get to in so much and and to answer the second part of your question like the trauma that dwight gooden went through in his childhood was a complete surprise to me um as Met fans, we knew Daryl Strawberry came from a bad background. Dwight Gooden came from a good background. In the in the sort of broad strokes, as a fan, that's what we were told in the '80s. And he had a middle class family, and his father and mother came to the games, and you just felt like, okay, Daryl haunted, troubled, great talent, but it's going to be difficult. Dwight Angel, perfect. This is going to be amazing. And, and so to hear the trauma and that his mother shot his father at one point because Dwight had accidentally let her know about an affair that his father was having. I mean, that's like, you know, Greek tragedy kind of stuff. Thankfully, he lived the father lived and, and, and they stayed married. But, you know, I had no idea the depth of the trauma that, that Dwight Gooden went through in his childhood. That was that was completely news to me. And, and there's more. I mean, there's actually another story that we didn't have time for of, of him being in a, a, a house where his sister gets shot in the head when he's like six years old. And it's just like stunning. Now, we didn't have time for all those things. And I should say we're lucky enough to have this oral history, this book that came out that sort of contains a lot of the stories that we just didn't have time for in, in the film. But yeah, I mean, to get back to your point, I mean, there was there were so many moving stories that these guys told um, that it was just what made them great in the 80s was not just how talented they were, but they were so compelling as personalities. And and the same remains true today. Even if you didn't like them in the 80s, you couldn't deny that they were captivating. You couldn't avoid the 86 Mets. And and the same is, is true now. These these are really interesting people and, and interesting characters is what makes for an interesting documentary. You know, you mentioned that you didn't have time to tell the story. There must be so many things that are sitting on the cutting room floor. Of all of those things that we didn't get to see, what do you think is the, the one that you most say, I wish I could hear that, or I wish I would have put that in there? Well, it's funny because I hadn't thought about this. This the other story from Dwight's childhood really is traumatizing, and it's not like I wish we'd put it in because it's it's like how many traumas can you put in in one man's childhood? Um, but there's a great, really uh, intense story that Rain Knight told that I kind of wish we'd had time for, but it is thankfully in the in the companion book. And it's he they're in St. Louis, and it's a hot day and 
Gary Carter is outside signing autographs because that's what Gary Carter does. And the rest of the team is on the bus. And Strawberry is getting angrier and angrier. And he leans his head out the window and he says, hey, Camera Carter, get your butt in here. And come on. And like he starts yelling at Carter. And Carter gets on the bus and he's furious. And he starts storming towards the back of the bus where Strawberry is. And Strawberry comes storming towards the front of the bus. And Ray Knight stands up in the middle of them and sticks his hands out and stops the two of them and says, hey, we're not going to fight each other. And to me, that story <laughs> said so much about his leadership and, and their attitude and, and their toughness and the fact that they knew they fought and they're going to fight everyone else. They're not going to fight each other. Um, so I wish we'd had time for that story. Um, but I've told you now. Yeah. And Nick, <laughs> Nick, if you have a couple more minutes, the other thing that I just want to discuss is one, the companion piece. So we have this book once upon a time in Queens and it is, it is so great. I don't know whose idea it was to put this out with this, but it, but it's incredible. How do you have time to do, to do that, the documentary and you have another new book? Well, I, I know it is. So I, I, from the minute I was able to get this project off the ground, I was saying to them, this has to be a book. We have to have a companion book. Like there's, we're going to have so much, so many stories. Let's do it. So Thankfully, because we're having transcribers and everything, it was it was a lot of work to pull it together, especially because the publication or the due date for the manuscript was before we'd edited the fourth episode. So it was very hard, especially for the later chapters. And it's why the later chapters, frankly, are, are a little fuller uh, than than the uh, than the early chapters. Uh, even so, it's it's all con- everything contains many stories that we just um, didn't, you know, weren't able to fit in, in the film. And I also, years ago, started a companion book about a documentary about my grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, and his brother, Joe Mankiewicz. And, and the, 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 the companion book is called Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait. And it took me 19 years to write in part because there was no film. So I, I, there was going to be this documentary film. This was going to be a companion book. And the film went away, and I was left with the book contract that I had to fulfill. And I'm enormously proud and, and pleased that I did. Um, and I don't know how I did it all. I, I did it all because I had to do these two things. You can't walk away from a book about your, fa- uh, your, your, your family, and you cannot. You have to do this project about your uh, you know, favorite team of all time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I can sleep later. Well, well, what do you do after this? You cover, you cover one of the most interesting teams in baseball history, and then you cover your, your, your family, which also covers one of the most interesting periods because for people who don't know, your grandfather was the, the screenwriter of Citizen Kane. So, so what do you do next? How do you top it? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got another film that I'm just starting to get off the ground that I'm really excited about. It's it, nothing will ever be as, as uh, sort of pressure packed as, as these two in, in the, because I cared so deeply about them uh, going into it. But, um, but on the other hand, I think that, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not worried about that. I think it'll be fun and it'll be a little easier to, I've made films about things I knew nothing about and that, that can be a lot of fun. 
Um, this one, the, the one I, I'd like to get off the ground, I can't talk about it, but um, but it would be really fun, and it has to do with sports, and I'll come back and talk about it. Yeah, I was going to say, able to complete it. When, yeah. you, when you get that one off the ground, we hope you'll come back and give us a little time. We really appreciate, first of all, the work that you did, because we've enjoyed watching it, Jeff, more than me, of course. Uh, but second, for giving us a little time to talk about it today. Thanks so much. Oh, well, thank you, guys. This was fun. Uh, you have a great one, man. Jeff. Thanks. Jeff, that was like your dream, right? To, to to relive the '86 Mets right there with the man. It who was, and you know, uh, since that time, I've become a Phillies fan, which is even odder. But I, it is but very I, odd. Like, like I, I don't look at the Mets now as the same team. Like it, it's really weird. Like in my own, like I've tried so to the figure 86 out. The '86 Mets aren't the Mets. No, they're the '86 Mets. Like like my childhood has been separated from my adulthood, and when I moved here. I switched and I don't know when it happened. I can't tell you the specific day. I can tell you there was a point at which I took my, my three-year-old or four-year-old son to a spring training, Mets spring training game, bought a hat and I came home and he threw it in the trash and said, uh, you're now a Philly fan. And that's when you were and, a Philly fan. I already, I already kind of was. But, appreciate, but, appreciate that, Alex. But, you know, we all have, I mean, the one great thing about sports, the reason you and I, I mean, we spend so much time talking about it is because not just because of the event itself, but how the event has impacted you and how your relationships with your, your family, who you go with and your friends, how that impacts your life. And, and so there are certain moments that trigger that. For me, that 86 Mets team was, I was a freshman in college, and I can tell you everybody that I was sitting with in the lounge of my dorm watching it. And I can tell you the reactions to Tim Tuffle letting the ball through his legs and Mookie Wilson and that hit and all of that. And even though I can't remember what I ate earlier today, I, so I can remember that entire series it's and so that funny. moment in my life and how much those people, I have shared that again with people I was sitting with in 1986. Uh, you've met my wife. You see how she thinks I'm ridiculous at times with the amount of sports that I watch. At she times. knew that I needed to do a sports radio show when she heard all of the particular memories I had at individual sporting events that I remembered every detail when we get in the car to drive together and I go, when did they knock that down? We passed something and she goes three years ago. I'm oblivious to almost everything sometimes, but sports memories are like seared into my brain. So I, I have I have an idea for you. This once, is dangerous. Once, once we once we figure out the last time you had an idea, you no, ended up getting I, dunked on. Th by th the way, this is this is going to be your father son moment. Is, is at some point Ben Simmons is going to get traded, right? We you think? Well, and, he's and when he gets traded and he comes back, assuming that he is brave enough to play in that game. You have got to take your son to nah. the game. Yes. Nope. Because because the the things that will come out us knowing what your kid is only said so, so that far, he can get the frosty freeze out when Ben misses the free exactly. Throw. He'll be his favorite player. He won't want to, he will want a Simmons Indiana Pacers so it's, jersey. It's, whatever it is, it, those moments will happen. Because can you imagine if, when Ben comes? I don't think he'll play. I honestly think that when he's traded, if he comes back here, he could be the healthiest person on the planet. He will not play, play in, in that this game. arena. It's really funny you say that about a New Jersey, and we'll go to break after this, and then we'll come back talk a few minutes before we have Mel Renfro, uh, Super Bowl champion, NFL Hall of Famer on to talk. Uh, my son Brandon had 
it must have been a shirt, extra shirt at school, and he must have gotten something on a shirt. And so he came home, and he's wearing the Sixer shirt, and it's mm-hmm. got Simmons twenty five on the back. Did he get booed? <laughs> and my neighbor goes, I "Think you're going to need to get him a t- new t shirt?" Yeah, they're, they're like, "What kind of parent <laughs> so are you?" Even my neighbors are judging me now because my son is wearing Ben Simmons' name. We'll talk more about that and everything else when we get back. Let's especially hit the break. since your last name is Springer. That's right. Hit the break. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. We're back here. So, Jeff, the Sixers this week made lots of news. They started playing games. Allen Iverson wants to come back here, apparently. Ben Simmons does not want to come back here still, apparently. Well, we covered Ben Simmons. I mean, uh, unless uh, you have other questions for me, because I really want to I, talk about Allen Iverson. I know you do. Yeah. I, I want to ask you, Ben, you you were on Keith Pompey's uh, Locked on Sixers podcast, and mm. you guys were talking about the Indiana deal. Right. Are you at a point... Proposal. It's not a deal. Proposal. Uh, yeah. Potentially mm-hmm. Karis LeVert, Malcolm Brogdon, and a pick. Yes. Obviously, there's other things out there. Where are you at this point? Are you at a trade him for anything you can get? No, I'm not at that. Okay. I, are you it, at a hold because, him... Wait, hold on. Yeah. Uh, there's three options. Oh. Make him sit out just cause if you can't get anything just cause <laughs> trade him like hold out for that dame lillard or somebody where you have to move other players in a deal or take whatever you can get well one and two go together uh, i mean not just cause here's my belief nobody cares about the first half of the regular season the reason that the nba doesn't do anything until christmas essentially is because they know nobody cares until football season's almost over so and the sixers have a good enough team they're going to make the playoffs anyway so there is no rush to get rid of him for nothing. What you do is you hold out. You've heard the story. You've seen the stories. Ben's already gotten to a point. They didn't think they didn't realize how much money they were going to lose as a Which result is of this. Uh, how is that I don't, possible? If that's the case, somebody's <laughs> if that's the case, somebody's I'm not doing their job. I'm questioning the agency. Yeah, but but the fact that. is, you hold out. Whatever deal you can get now, you likely can get at the trade deadline. So whatever you're going to get now is not going to be the best deal that you can possibly make. So at this point, if you believe that they should have done it sooner, it's too late now to go back in time, but you can fix this by going forward. And at, the problem with it is, is what happens if Ben does show up? Well, he's okay. going to. Says who? Uh, he's going to end up showing up. He's not going to keep on a beat because he is afraid to show his face. I'm not saying he's going to play. I said he's going to show up. So okay, we'll, see, we'll see. I don't. That he's not fine. It makes no sense that he doesn't show. What he should have done, and I'm not saying it's the honest thing to do. What he should have done is he should, should have shown up, injury. and and they would all sit there and pretend he had an injury. Yes. Everybody in the league would know about it. People could save face, and then they could make a trade. Well, look. The other day we opened our Sixers app, and we've got Ben Simmons all, all in showing up there. So apparently they're all in with him. Well, they're all in with everybody except Allen Iverson, right? All right, you're very bothered by Allen's... I'm bothered by the outrage. Okay, so That's we'll lay out the story. Allen Iverson said this week in an interview that you know he's not trying to slate the fans, but basically he believes he should have some type of position with the organization. Um, you don't like 
which part of it? Do you, do you not care that he's making the comments? He's entitled to it, but that people are outraged that he's saying it. Where, he's where are entitled you? to want a job if he wants a job. I don't have to go through Allen Hiverson's entire off the court history to tell you that based on that off the court history, if I was running an organization, he's not the person that I would want in the front office. Is he, there a role for him though? I'm sure there is. If you want to put him in the world be free role kind of thing, okay, I get it. But that doesn't appear to be what Alan wants. Alan was talking about the fact that he could he could evaluate talent. Based on what? We don't know that. Where, when has he ever done it? So he thinks he should just walk in because he was talented. That we all have seen incredible basketball players and other athletes, they don't make good coaches. So what makes him think that he can evaluate talent? He hasn't done it. He hasn't said, hey, let me at least go be a scout for a while. Go sit in other arenas and give you some ideas. That hasn't come across. What are you going to do, put him as CFO? I mean, it. it what bothers me most is, that the, is this fake outrage at somehow the Sixers are doing him wrong because they're not giving him a job because he gave them so much. The Sixers gave him something too, a whole bunch of money. You, you, you don't have a, a, an entitlement to a lifetime position because of something you do before. We all know that sports is what have you done for me lately. So it, this is not like some new theme. I, I, I just, is it, it that other teams, me. is it that other teams have stars back involved some, in their leadership or ownership do. that this is looked on poorly here? Is every professional star athlete involved in the organization they were with? No. no, some are, some aren't. So, and so, it's hard to talk about Allen because he's, you know, you either love him flawed. or you weren't. You know, you you looked at the other side of the AI, not the game, yes. the the other stuff that came with it, and so it's hard to have that conversation with people. But I find the outrage around him making the comments just like. You know, all of a sudden, it's like, how dare the Sixers not hire him? Or how dare Allen have that opinion? Like, who cares? People have agenda. opinions. That's it's, right. And, and you want to have your opinion, that's fine. It's the outrage that like bothers me. We, we talked me. with because, Keith because about... Because the people with the outrage, it's all the fact that th this is just an agenda. We talked with Keith about clickbait. To me, that was just a clickbait headline. Like, oh, Allen Iverson's mad at the Sixers because they won't hire him. Yeah, but a network's made, you know, hours out of this. Like, <laughs> just... I don't understand sometimes. I really don't. It doesn't make sense to me. Anyway, Sixers have two more preseason games left before they get things underway for real in 12 days against the Pelicans. And they don't know who their starting point guard is. Yeah. That, wh what? <laughs> I, don't, I don't get that story at all. I don't, I, 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 you know, sometimes I wonder, coaches have to say things. I, this was not Please one. Please tell he me that's one of he, them. He didn't have to say this. All, he didn't have to say, well, you know, sometimes we're going to use this point guard as a starter and this one is a, You don't need to say that stuff. I, well, I, I know it hurts your feelings. Because oh. you want Maxi as the starter. No, I think Maxi will no, end up no. as the starter. You want Maxi as the starter. No. It's okay to say I it. Want you Maxie, love Maxi. I want Maxi to have a role and develop. You think that I think that he's like ready to be primetime now. Yes. I've just thought that he has talent that they shouldn't throw him do away. You think, do you think he should be the starting point guard now? Out of the choices they have, yes. Mm -hmm. But okay. I don't think he's good enough to necessarily be a starting point guard in the NBA. Okay, well then who if if Maxi's not the starting point guard on this team, if Ben Simmons is not here based on the current roster, who is 
Well, that's the problem. <laughs> they don't. Ha- they don't have another point. Like, Shake Milton is not a point guard. That's the thing. You say he is a shooting. You guard. say it as like I want Maxi. It's like who you else do. is it going to be? Shake Max. Shake. You Milton. love Maxi. Why? Why are you not embracing your your fan love for for Tyrese Maxi? I do, but I think okay, he's being forced into a role <laughs> that he's not ready yet for. If it would be much better as the backup point guard coming off the bench with Shake playing another role instead of him being the starting point guard and Shake being the point guard to run. So. In the Second. So then would you take the risk uh, of the Malcolm Brogdon, the oft-injured Karis LeVert, and a pick? Not yet. I would probably wait. Cause if you, cause but like the you Malcolm said, if you, Brogdon solves your point guard problem, right? He does, but Karis and LeVert, you're, look, you're a Michigan man. Karis LeVert hasn't been healthy since he's been in college. Uh, I spent a whole podcast with Keith saying, look, as much as I love Karis LeVert, I went through season by season. He's not played full seasons. And that's the problem. But, okay, the reason that I like that is because— And he's injured right now. The only reason, other than you get yourself a point guard in Brogdon and you can debate whether he actually fills the need, is that you're not giving up other assets because you have to dump Ben. Like, that's my concern is when you go into a larger deal to try and go superstar hunting, in order to bury the depleted asset that is Ben Simmons right now, you have to give other assets that you believe could be good. You're going to. Either not in that Indiana trade. You're going to. But why don't we talk to a guy who actually didn't need to be traded for anything because he made the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Like, anytime you can be joined by a member of the NFL Hall of Fame class, 1996, member of more important team, Gridiron Greats, assistant. Fun, so much fun to be joined by Mel Renfro. Mel, thanks for giving us a few minutes today. Glad to be here. Always uh, willing to help, and uh, especially with great friend um, Mike Ditka and, and, and what he's done so much over the years. Glad to be a part of it. Well, so Mel, let's let's start with that. Um, you know, we've had some of your other uh, fellow alumni who've been part of the Gridiron Greats Assistance Fund. What what drew you to it, and, and what do you see as the biggest thing that needs still needs to be done as part of this fund and part of taking care of, of the previous classes of, of NFL players? Well, you know, back in, in my day, uh, and, you know, Mike Dick and we, we, we were starting out, uh, there wasn't the great uh, big contracts, the great deals of money that the players made, and uh, and, and, and and the players weren't really taken care of, and a lot of guys were unable to pay their rent, and weren't able to take care of their medical needs, uh, and and that was so much well needed. So now uh, with the need for it, and and, and Mike stood up and and created the Gridiron uh, Greats, and uh, provide uh, an avenue in the raise funds where these guys could come and and request uh, monies to take care of those needs which was very much needed, and, uh, you know, it's grown, and uh, with the pork rind people being a part of, of, of this effort, uh, it's just blossomed, and, uh, you know, I've been a part of it since the beginning, and uh, I'm still a part of it, and I'm glad to, to, to participate and help in any way that I can. Why do you think it is so hard to get the NFL and NFLPA to, to support your generation of the, the players that you have to turn to these efforts? You know, that's a question I am asked all the time, and, uh, you know, the answer that comes to me is they just won't. Uh, you know, it's kind of ridiculous that they make such tremendous amounts of money 
I mean, you know, you can pay a guy uh, millions and millions of dollars a year, and you know, you can't you can't lend a hand to a poor guy who has medical needs, financial needs, you know, who never made a hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, I don't know. It's the powers that be. You know, the owners make so much money, and they're in control of it. They were in control of it when I was playing. You know, they're pretty much in control of it now. Uh, it's just a question mark that might always be there. But, you know, if we can do what we can as former players and, you know, guys like Mike Ditka that know what the need is and know how to uh, get get in there and, and you know, uh, get the guys to work together and uh, getting people to, you know, uh, donate, uh, you know, it would be a great day for those people, those guys, players that are in need. You know, uh, Mel, we, we talked to Keyshawn Johnson a couple of weeks ago about, uh, I don't know if you've seen the book, The Forgotten First. Uh, it was about the four, first four African-American uh, football players in the NFL. And, and as we were reading about that and talking about that, I was looking into some other things. And one of the things that came up was, was your important role in the NFL and in Dallas with regard to fair housing. Uh, you seem like somebody who, who is willing to use your platform to tackle important issues. What made you decide to get involved in that issue and to decide that you were going to use the platform you had as an NFL player to tackle these issues? Well, you know, at the time I may have been a little bit crazy and not really <laughs> uh, knowing what was going to come out of it. You know, I was... Um, uh, came from uh, Portland, Oregon, and, and it hadn't been, uh, you know, hadn't, hadn't been touched with uh, the, the depth of uh, some of the, the racism and the, uh, that, that type of thing. So, I, you know, I, I stood up when something happened, and bang, I got slapped, but, uh, you know, I, I, I survived it. Uh, you know, what I did was the right thing to do, and it and, and from what I heard later, I got many phone calls and many uh, people that told me how much they appreciated what I had done and how much I uh, helped their cause and them uh, getting what they needed to get done because of, you know, the things, that, that, how I stepped forward and, and, and did and said the things I did. And I know I, I won't regret it. And, uh, you know, I do you hope more more players will do the same thing and you know guys like Mike get Ditka that uh that goes so far back and and was such a big name has done so much for so many causes and and, and with the with the gridiron greats and, and the pork Ryan uh situation you know it's just uh, one part of uh, what is a great need as far as moving the effort forward to help these uh, indigent uh, players that uh, have medical problems and financial problems. You know, you talk about taking a stand and using your platform and doing the right thing. We we talk with athletes about that all the time. And in your Hall of Fame speech, you, you talked about helping young people. And you said athletes need to be role models. We need to present an image of people who want to do the right thing. Can you talk about how you did that and then what advice you would give athletes of today who are trying to make their own way and figure out how they can use the platform that they have to make an impact. Well, you know, you always have to take the position of leadership. And in, in, in doing that, always do the right thing, always say the right thing, 
always uh, when when you're in a group and you have a platform, you know, it's always what is the right thing to do. Uh, it's not about greed. It's not about you know uh, an open abundance of money. It's not about being first. You know, it, it's all about uh, teamwork. It's, it's all about uh, togetherness. It's all, it's all about having each other's back. And it's all about working hard, and, and, and it's all about uh, consistency and, and staying together. Uh, and one great thing about the Cowboys was a lot of the players stayed together and played together for so long, got to know each other uh, very well, and, and that's why we were so successful because uh, we, we knew each other and we had each other's back, and I think that's what it takes nowadays for players to to really form strong relationships and stand together uh, no matter, you know, what it is that's out there, you know, work together, stand together, play together, and be a team. But, and before we, we uh, talk w- a little bit more about Pork Ryan Appreciation Day and what you're doing for Gridiron Greats one more time, uh, I had a question about early in your career. And, and as I was reading about you, I saw that despite the fact that you were a great defensive back, you were moved to running back only to have Dan Reeves replace you, and then you went back to the place that you, you had made your bread and butter and became a Hall of Famer. What was, what was that moment like when they came to you and said, we want you to switch positions, and by the way, we're going to have you switch back? Well, Coach Landry uh, was a great innovator in, in many ways in defense, offense. Well, uh, during my first three years, uh, I... Uh, ran back punts and kickoffs and actually led the league. And I actually, I, I gained more yards than our running back carrying the football. And he said, well, let's use this as a weapon on offense. But uh, unfortunately, my uh, early, my third year, as I started uh, offense, I, I broke my foot first game, uh, first quarter, and uh, was never really to recover from that foot injury. And of course, Dan Reeves came in and did a tremendous job. And of course, me, you know, being versatile as I was, as soon as my uh, injury healed, you know, I got back on defense and just started to uh, play. And still made the Pro Bowl, missed six games, but made the Pro Bowl, uh, intercepting passes, making the defense better. And uh, of course, uh, playing defense, I think, prolonged my career. A lot more years because it's a lot easier to go hit a guy than, you know, every time you <laughs> touch the ball, the 11 guys come in at you. So uh, no regrets there. Um, I loved uh, offense and defense, uh, but I think uh, playing defense prolonged my career. But nevertheless, I was a guy that liked to carry the football. And uh, But, after, you know, when I look at the, the big scheme of thing and the big picture, it all turned out um, – you know, the way I think God meant for it to be. And being in the Hall of Fame is just probably the greatest thing that could happen to any football player. So I look back on it with fond memories and just congratulate all those new inductees that are coming in, and they're going to know what it feels like, uh, you know, just as soon as they get there and they get that ring that they just received, they know what the feeling is, and they're going to pass that feeling on to to their their friends and uh, former teammates. I could ask you about what that feels like all day, but more importantly, I got to ask you about Pork Rind Appreciation Day and how people can help out to help out the fellow alumni that you guys are looking to support. 
Well, you know, uh, those things are addicting. They're delicious for one thing, and, and you know, and 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 they're um, uh, you know they're high in protein, low in carbs, and they're just they're healthy for you. And you know, you can sit and just nibble on those things, and and uh, and they're they're doing good. Uh, you're you're contributing to a good cause, a good charity. And uh, enjoying uh, a healthy food, uh, I think that's you know that that, that no, but no no better thing to do on a football Sunday than to watch a football game and eat pork rinds. Well, we encourage people to go out and get some pork rinds, support the NFL alumni, and all you guys are doing with the Gridiron Greats effort with Coach Dicka. Thank you so much for the time, and uh, look forward to seeing what you guys are able to do to help out. You're certainly welcome. Glad to be on the show. Jeff, it, they always take care of each other, even if the NFL isn't going to do it. And it's it's so hard. It's got to be so hard to get that question. Like, you gave so much to this league. You gave your body. Now people say, like, yeah, they get huge salaries. He didn't. <laughs> well, well, for people who didn't hear it last year, I mean, we had Icky Woods on, who had, had a serious injury and couldn't get it taken care of unless if it weren't for the Gridiron Greats Fund. And, and, and that's the amazing look. Yes, they, they, I guess they're not responsible if legally. But the question is, is morally, what's the right thing to do? And, and these guys back then, they didn't have the helmets that they have today. They didn't have the technology. They didn't have the medicine. They obviously had worse injuries because they didn't have all of it. They didn't stuff. know about concussions. Right. And, 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 and so to not take care of these guys, if, if this were a situation the NFL didn't have the money, it'd be one thing. But with the billions of dollars that they make, a new TV contract's how, coming. How do you how do you not take care of these people that are the face? Of, I mean, Mel Fren, Renfro's bust is in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I got so, so so how do you not take care of him? Icky Woods is one of the the great characters in the history of the game. How do you not take care of these guys? You can go on and on and on. I mean, have you ever seen like video of of what Earl Campbell is like today? No. It, it this is this is a guy I who assume was, he has a hard time walking. Given yeah, everything. he was he was a. I mean, you didn't see him play. You've probably seen video. I've of seen it. the video of it. But I I saw him play. He was a monster when he was out there. He could just run through an entire defense or carry them on his back. But what it did to his body is is incredible to see what he looks like today. Do you think they they reach a point where the NFL actually does anything for them? No. This is just a no. I think that they, they, they that every once in a while there's a wave of stories on this and then it goes away, and that's the sad part of it. And, and you have people that are vocal. I mean, could you have a more vocal person than Mike Ditka as the head of this organization? No, and it's hard, you know, for me to move on to something else because like I want to make a joke, but we're talking about something so serious. But like, how do you transition to a joke? Well, but, you could still talk about football, and you could go to the Eagles. And well, they the, are a joke. Uh, well, but, exactly. So you don't have to make but, a joke; just say well, the, Eagles. The right? larger joke, though, is that you've made my dreams come true, Jeff. You've given me a sports radio show in Philadelphia where I've talked about the Mets and the Cowboys. Thanks, <laughs> Jeff. So, so here's your chance. You got another <laughs> ten minutes. Go ahead, talk about the Eagles. Oh, glad we could get to the see, Eagles because exactly. they're doing so well uh -huh. these days. Let's see, Lane Johnson. Sports in Philadelphia for, is going swimmingly for personal reasons. Nick yeah. Sirianni's apparently yelling at his defensive coordinator that it's being leaked out publicly. They still don't know how to run the ball. The defense can't stop anything. But I'll be honest, Jalen Hurts looks good. 
He did look better last yeah. week. But the, I think he got a quarterback. Look, the defense gave up 23 points in the first two games. Yeah. They gave up 83 points in the next well, two Well, yeah, but it was Kansas City. I mean, Kansas City scores on everybody. I actually thought they played better than I thought they would against Kansas City. At it's, least the first half. It's the lack of takeaways <laughs> that have been difficult, but their offensive struggles, they've scored a touchdown or field goal on 37.5% of their offensive drives. That's only 20th in the league. So what do you think they need most? What do the Eagles need most? What position? Oh, my goodness. A, a linebacker. Okay. Well, then guess what? Here's what you do. You trade Miles Sam- Sanders for a linebacker. Well, if you're not going to use don't him, need a running back. If you're not going to use Miles Sanders, right. like, that's the thing. It's like I put in here, are they going to run the ball? Well, let me the guess Panthers, he's on your fantasy team. I, of so, course he see, is. See, so there's double but outrage. But that's not I the, knew it. No, that's not even the reason. Yes. Look, the Panthers' defense gave up 245 rushing yards yeah. to the Cowboys. They rank third in the league in total defense. But mm-hmm. their their rush defense is awful. Right. When the Eagles do rush, they have a higher mark at four yards a carry I than any other team in Kansas City. And yet they won't give the ball to Miles Sanders. And I don't care that he's on my fantasy team. Yes, I, you do. I care. Well, see, that's the biggest lie you've ever told no, on the radio. I care about that. But you have a rookie <laughs> dropping back. <laughs> you said back. you didn't care. I don't care is the primary reason okay. why this is an issue. All right. I care because you have a rookie dropping back 40-plus times takes judicial notice. behind a line <laughs> that has four replacements in there. It makes no sense to me. Uh-huh. Why are you doing that? What is your game plan here? I don't know. Don't look at me. Well, apparently they don't, I don't know get, either. I don't get what Nick Sirianni's doing at they, all. When they ask Gannon about the defense he's running, he goes, well, we don't have a style. Which apparently is why Sirianni blew up with him. But the fact that that's making yeah, it into well, the newspapers is a problem. Yeah, the Jeff. Eagles got to stop giving pre- doing press conferences. I think that's the answer. Uh, that's yeah. that's a, that's part of it. It's not going to solve who wins and loses, but, but it'll at least get rid of some of your aggravation, right? Look, if they don't win this week, it yeah. ain't going to get any prettier next week. They got Tom Brady and the Bucks coming to town on Thursday night. On Thursday night, I might actually watch that one. Of course you will, so that you can rip me about it on Friday. No, no, no. Oh, no. that's right. That's C. Yeah. That's what you want to do. Vito has a question. I'm oh, going to let him go ask. Go ahead. Raise your hand. So I have two points for you. <laughs> that was a role reversal. We don't take points. We have well, questions. It was a role yeah. reversal there. Jeff served one up, and that was the blow up that he usually has when yes. you serve it up. Yes. My point is Jalen Smith just got released this week. Obviously, he already He's got gone. signed. Right. He, he already signed. got signed by the Packers. But shouldn't the Eagles at least take a flyer on it? It's only going to cost you money. And I know they're up against the cap, but at least take a it was flyer too late. on it. It, it was... doesn't matter. Well, look, he got signed immediately. The Packers think... just swooped in, and they had an in with him because their coach knew him from college at Notre Dame. Uh, right. But so yes, you didn't but, have a shot at. But yes, the answer is you. You should have kicked the tires on it to see if he's healthy or see what it is. The with tires that. never with came these... into your garage. But, but you that's had no shot. that's why for the Eagles they need Jalen Hurts to plan out because yeah. they're they're going to need those three picks next next year, which right now. You know, right now are three picks in the top ten next year. It'll be interesting to see if the Packers and the Cowboys play in the playoffs. And <laughs> Jalen Smith makes a difference, huh? So, how many Eagles fans are the Jaguars won't be following the, the Dolphins and the Colts as much as they are the Eagles this year, just to see where those draft picks? End I'm now. Na- I'm now following the Jaguars. You're following the okay. I am. All I right, absolutely following the, the your buddy, your best guy. buddy. You sent me your picture again with Urban yes. Meyer from the Army Navy game. It, it really is you embarrassing that I took friends. that picture. <laughs> well, apparently you're not the only one who takes pictures with Urban Meyer, Jeff. Yes, so, he did not his put his hands anywhere inappropriate. So Urban picture. Meyer, um, if he's not having enough difficulty on the field with his yeah. team. 
He apparently decided to stay behind after the team lost last Thursday night in Ohio to be with his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And after the event, moved over to some location, potentially the same location. See, see that? See, but that, that's that's the story. That's what got lost at the beginning. Is because everybody was talking about the the woman grinding up against him. And by the way, I don't know if you saw. They had a practice yesterday, the Jaguars, and as they came out of the huddle, they'd clap and say grind. And you saw <laughs> lots of the players laughing. Well, so I don't know if that was their motto has, beforehand. I, sus- I suspect it wasn't he, based on the fact that they were laughing. Has he lost the locker room? He never had it. Well, that's the problem. That's the problem. And and I am sick and tired of people saying, well, he wanted every other level. Yes, he wanted college. It's a different set of rules. There are no rules when you're Florida or you're Ohio State. And he can run the pro- the program and he can sweep everything under the rug just like he tried to do. Remember, he had Aaron Hernandez, okay, when he was at Florida. When he was at Ohio State, he left there under bad circumstances. He had a situation in addition where one of his assistant coaches was accused of some bad behavior and and they were very close and he got in trouble for that Didn't one. Didn't he already have a thing with a coach in Jacksonville when he got there? Well, so then then he gets there and he hires he hires a I think it was an, strength a coach. trainer, strength strength dire- director, whatever you want to call him. And and he had issues when he was in college, but Urban Meyer believes that he can do what he wants whenever he wants and you cannot get away with that when a lot of the players are probably making more than you are. Okay, so but you, you think there's an ultimate plan for Urban Meyer? Oh, I, I, I think that if the Jaguars go 0 and 8, that Urban Meyer is going to step down saying he needs to t- spend time with his, his family, and that gives him enough time, maybe a month or two, to kind of do what he's supposedly going to do. And then all of a sudden he rears his ugly head in USC or someplace else. I think that's what's going to happen here because he can't survive. He could survive the season if he wants, but all of these leaks about the players saying they laugh at him. When was the last time you ever heard? I've heard stories about people being unhappy with coaches. I've never seen the number of stories about how the fact that after he speaks, he leaves the room and they openly laugh at him. You don't have the locker room. And, and the biggest faux pas he made when he w- with the Columbus trip had nothing to do with what happened in the bar. They played a game. They lost a game. All the players had to get on the plane and go gone home. back with his I'm team. Sh- I'm sure that some of those players would have loved to spend time with their friends in some bar that they, want to be- that they, that they frequent, that they would have spent it with their families. But no, they had to get on the flight, and they had to go home. Urban Meyer didn't. He didn't go back with the team. What, and what was the reason he gave? Staying with his grandchildren. Yeah, and, and, and he needed some time to clear his head. Well, why don't, why don't his te- why did the team not get to do that? Because Urban Meyer has always been and always will be a hypocrite. I, I will give you this. You called this. <laughs> you, well, I didn't call you, what was going to happen in You didn't in call what bar. happened in the bar, but you yeah. called this exact thing, how short it would be. I'm, I'm sure that there's audio of you calling it on the air because we've <laughs> talked so much on the air about this. Probably when you took the picture with him at the Army-Navy game. Oh. Uh, minute and a half left, Jeff. Um, the Philly season is done. Um, I still don't understand. I'm not surprised that they're firing people. I don't get that they fired them before the last game. Why would you fire two of your coaches right before the last game? Could you not wait? Give them a day. What was going to happen that you couldn't wait until after the game? Wait three hours. It made no sense. Did it make you happy that Dombrowski said he doesn't know if DD's going to be back? Uh, (laughs) 
Well, no, he sa- he didn't say he didn't know if he's going to be back. Be starter. He doesn't know if he's going to be the spar- starter. And that's the thing. Look, if Bryson Stott can carry over what he did in his progression this year, that is the best you, case scenario you saw for the him Phillies. play, right? When you did you see him? We play interviewed we interviewed him at the uh, minor league All Star game a couple of years ago too. He's a he's a great kid, and he is he's got the right mentor. He's very close with Bryce Harper. They're both out in Vegas. They spend time together in the off season. Apparently, they watch football games on Sundays, and he he is learning from a guy who busts it all the time. So you're going to have a guy that you know is going to get here and have a right mentality. He's not going to come here and be like Alec Bohm. Well, that's the fear. Is but Alec he... Bohm they got to get rid of. Take take what you can get. This was another one of their over when they overvalued him when they drafted. Which him. every look we were doing our minor league show then. Everybody at the time talked about that. Jeff, five seconds. Anything Matt Veerling is better than Alec Bohm. There you go. We'll leave it at that. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>